Welcome to MoFo Perspectives, a podcast by Morris and Forster, where we share the perspectives of our clients, colleagues, subject matter experts, and lawyers. Welcome to the Diversity in Practice podcast, a part of MoFo Perspectives. My name is Natalie Kernesant, and I am the Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer for Morrison and Forrester. This podcast series is designed to provide a space to discuss a wide variety of issues related to diversity in the law and to introduce you to some of our talented, diverse attorneys, their areas of legal expertise, and the work that they and their MOFO allies do in furtherance of diversity, equity, and inclusion. On behalf of the firm's Mental Health Steering Committee and the Women's Strategy Committee, I just want to welcome you and thank you for participating. Um, We are very lucky today to have Rochelle Gapair with us. Um, We're going to talk about happiness, which is a a topic that um, hopefully resonates with everybody. It certainly certainly does with me. Um, And the thing that uh, I think is most fascinating is really the, the concept that much of our happiness is within our control. So our goal for today is to really focus on the how, the tangible things that you can do. Um, and um, hopefully all of you will walk away with some, some tools to add to your toolkit, so to speak, um, in terms of how to just increase the level of happiness in your lives and in your day-to-day. So I'm very pleased to introduce Rochelle. She is a happiness coach, an author, a lawyer, an entrepreneur, and she is known for bringing her charismatic personality, which you're about to see, and sheer joy, which you are also about to see, um, to everything that she does. Rochelle has, um, she has a BS in psychology, and she graduated with a JD from the University of Miami School of Law. So she is both a lawyer and a happiness coach. She'll tell us a little bit about that journey. Um, she was recently recognized as one of the top 100 female empowerment speakers, which is really cool. So Rochelle, thank you so much for, for being with, with us today. And I'm going to hand it over to you to kind of kick us off for a few minutes, um, walk us through some concepts and set the stage, and then we will have a, um, we'll have a discussion. Perfect. Thank you, Stacey. I am thrilled to be here. Before I start, I want to just thank Boo, Ernie, and Jenny for all the time they've spent to ensure that this program, this session is a huge success. I want to welcome, and I'm actually fascinated by all the countries that are in attendance. It just goes to show that happiness is something that's universal. There are 7.8 billion people on this planet. And it's the one thing I think we can all agree on that we crave it, we want it. Many of our goals are set in stone or are aspirational to help us become happier versions of ourselves. So I am thrilled to be here. I Hearing my introduction sometimes overwhelms me because this is a full circle moment for me. There was a time in my life where I was an unhappy attorney. And to know that six years later, the work that I have intentionally done and the work that I'm going to share with you today has really transformed my life. And I know it can absolutely transform your life as well. So a 2016 study by the ABA on attorney well-being found that 28% of lawyers suffer from depression. 19% of lawyers had severe anxiety, 
and 11.4% of lawyers had suicidal thoughts the year prior. So kudos to MoFo for being at the forefront of engaging these conversations, for just putting this, these statistics out there, for hosting these sub, web, webinars and sessions so that all of us can start speaking more vocally about what it is that we're going through, right? It makes good sense, good business sense for a firm's lawyers to be happy. The research shows that happier people live longer, are more creative, they make more money, they have stronger immune systems, and they are also healthier. Specific to employees, employees who feel happy in the workplace are 65% more energetic, they are 12% more productive, and are more likely to sustain their jobs over a period of time. Companies with happy employees outperform their competition by 20%. Engaged teams generate 21% more profit than disengaged ones. And employees who are happy take 10 times fewer sick days. So the case for happiness and why it matters, is, it's, it's there. The science proves it. And so a few years ago, Nurse Bronnie Ware published an article about the top five regrets of the dying. And one of, well, the number one regret was that people wish that they had the courage to live a life that was more true to themselves. The next regret is that they wish they had allowed themselves to be happier. Many people didn't realize until the end of their lives that happiness is a choice. So I will pause here and I'll ask you, on a scale of one to 10, how happy are you? How happy are you feeling in your life, in your career, in your relationships right now and over the past couple of weeks, past couple of months? This number is extremely important because we cannot fix what we don't confront. Vulnerability is bravery. There is no reason for you to suffer in silence when there is help to be had. So I want you to really nail down that number. If you are five or below, I want you to be deeply honest with yourself about that number. If you're driving to work and you're having anxiety, if you're in constant angst, if you are snapping at your loved ones, if you are crying yourself to sleep at night, listen, be honest with yourself. The minute that you own that number, then you can move forward and take the necessary steps to make your life better. And I will tell you this, your happiness is your responsibility. Nobody is coming to save you. You have to save yourself. Nobody's coming to save you. You have to save yourself. So today, my intention is to give you tools and tips and techniques that you can implement today, tonight, tomorrow morning, and start moving in the direction of living, designing, and creating a happier, more fulfilling life. So with that said, Stacey, let's go. Thanks, Rochelle. Um, so I've got a number of questions for Rochelle, but I also wanna invite all of you in the audience to use the Q&A feature if you have any questions for Rochelle as well, and we can dig into those. Um, so Rochelle, I think I'd like to start off just talking about the law profession. Like, what is it? Um, what does the science say? What do the studies say? Like, what is it about lawyers and the profession of law that results in these lower levels of happiness? 
So to start, um, first and foremost, before being an attorney, we are human beings, right? And as human beings, we are predisposed to have negative thoughts. We have on average 60,000 thoughts per day, and 80% of those thoughts are negative. 95% of those thoughts are repetitive thoughts. So we are thinking negatively the majority of the time, and we're thinking the same thoughts over and over again. And it makes sense because through evolution, we needed to think about the worst case scenario or the bear that would attack us. And we had to be on our P's and Q's to maintain our safety. So for attorneys specifically though, we tend to be more pessimistic. And being a professional pessimist works in the, in the sense that we are dotting all the I's and crossing all the T's for our clients, making sure that we think about every possible scenario that could happen. The problem with that, though, is that it starts bleeding over into our personal lives. So we're starting to also think about all the bad things that could happen to us individually. So what I would suggest is that whenever you are going down that negative thought loop, Think about your worst case scenario and the best case scenario. The odds of the bad thing happening are just as high as the good thing happening. So start, what is the best case outcome in this situation that I'm facing? Another thing is that lawyers don't tend to have a good or healthy work-life balance. So many of us are bombarded with work. We're allowing our work hours to bleed into our family life, especially now with this new work from home structure. We are blending work and home activities together. So have clear cutoffs about times that you are going to dedicate to work and times that you are also going to just focus on your own personal self-care. Another thing is that for friends or family or employers or partners, they have high expectations of us. We are used to being the problem solvers. So because people expect us to have all the answers, very rarely we want to show any vulnerability or any weakness. And that's a problem because of course, we're human beings, we all have bad days. And so it is inevitable that we're gonna have tough moments. And so we need to be very vocal with our family members or colleagues or coworkers when things aren't necessarily going well for us. Another thing I'll say before I wrap this point up is that we have high burnout rates. And a recent study by the ABA, it's a study that was conduct conducted in 2021, it showed the pervasiveness of lawyer burnout and women reported higher levels of stress. 67% of women said they had extreme stress. 38% said they worked long hours and 9% said they never stopped working. Of course, you're unhappy if, you're, if you never stop working. And just to add a term, compassion fatigue. You have to put yourself in your client shoes many times. And eventually, after having to absorb their trouble, their problems, it weighs heavily on us. So it's important that we are able to separate or clients' problems from our problems and what the solutions are. That's super interesting. I'm thinking, you know, we're talking about happiness. It feels like this big kind of elusive concept to me. We're lawyers, we like our defined terms. Um, can you just help us put a little framework around when we're talking about happiness? Like, what do we mean? What is happiness? So what I will say is that happiness is deeply personal. 
it is to an extent very subjective. And I want everybody who's listening tonight to make note of this. What makes you happy? When was the last time you really sat and thought about it? Because the things that made you happy, maybe at 20 years old, they probably aren't making you happy today. And so we have to be conscious and conscientious about doing the things that make us happy regularly, but we also have to define what that means for us. But nearly all the studies show that it shares some similar ingredients. And one is a sense of control and autonomy over one's life, being guided by purpose and meaning and connecting with others. Happiness can be measured, strengthened, and taught. But in this setting, happiness in the workplace is a feeling of an overall sense of enjoyment at work, being able to gracefully handle setbacks, connecting amicably with colleagues, coworkers, and clients, and knowing that your work matters to yourself, to your organization, and beyond. So... You talk about in your book, and Rochelle has a book, we'll send around the information to all of you, but just wanted to put in a little little plug. Um, You talk about the 40% rule of happiness. Um, Can you tell everybody about that? I find this really fascinating. So about 20 years ago, positive psychology experts conducted research, conducted a study, and they found that 50% of our happiness is based on our genetics or DNA, or biological makeup. 10% is based on our life circumstances. For instance, the pandemic that we recently found ourselves in, that's a life circumstance. But 40% of our happiness is based on our intentional daily habits and activities. 40% is your zone of genius. And if I could tell you, oh, you could predict the 40%, the outcome of your cases, you would say absolutely, right? So 40% is your sweet spot. And in moments where I am feeling not myself, low energy, I remind myself that 40% of my happiness is within my control. And that number is important because rather than thinking of happiness as something that's so external and so outside of you, you now realize that it is your daily activities, your intentional habits that are forming the core of your happiness and your well-being. It's so interesting because, you know, it's easy to feel like whatever circumstances you're facing at any given point are really what's driving your, you know, your happiness at that moment. So I I just find, you know, 50% genetics, that is what it is, but that there's only 10% that is driven by your circumstances and compared to 40% that's driven by your own actions and within your zone of control is really kind of eye-opening to me. Um, yeah, it's it's uh, it's it generates a lot of hope, I think. So, Rochelle, if you don't mind, I wanted to ask you. You said earlier when you were giving your um, kind of introductory remarks that you know six years ago you would have described yourself as an unhappy lawyer. Can you tell us a little bit about your journey and you know how you've how 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 you got from that place to where you are today? So, one, I will say that I worked in a work environment that allowed me to be vulnerable. 
That was important because I remember the day I marched down to my boss's office and I told her I needed six weeks unpaid leave. And she was startled. You know, she looked at me and she said, what's going on? And so I mentioned earlier that happiness in the workplace is having a sense of enjoyment at work, feeling that you are contributing, that your work has meaning. And so I found myself waking up for maybe three, four months, just not feeling inspired, not what my energy was low, and I just wasn't feeling myself. And so what I will say is that one, my boss provided the environment she cultivated and the office cultivated an environment where I felt safe to tell her I wasn't feeling good. Long story short, I ended up going off on a paid seven-week sabbatical to Oxford University, and I was intrigued why some people were more predisposed to happiness than others. I was a psychology major, and so I've always been fascinated with the study of the human brain and human dynamics. As I was researching, I realized that a new school of psychology was birthed called positive psychology, and it is about human flourishing. I truly believe none of us are put on this earth to live mediocre lives. I believe we should all be excited to wake up. And so once I realized that happiness was rooted in science and that it unlocked so many opportunities and possibilities for me, I said I wanted to scream it to the world. Surely I couldn't be the only unhappy attorney. And it's interesting because at my job, once I was vocal about what I was going through, it was a ripple effect. And other attorneys started speaking up about their hardships and about their sad moments. So, you know, vulnerability is bravery. It is hard. I will tell you it was hard because there are many days when I laid in that bed and thought, this is my dream life. This is the only thing I'd wanted to do since I was a kid, was to be an attorney. And then there was that knowing feeling of what next. And so what I will say to anybody who is listening right now is that any moment you could reinvent yourself, you can pivot. There is help to be had, but people need to know, people who you trust need to know that you are not in a good space or feeling your best self. And here I am. It's fascinating. Um, and I think, you know, obviously um, it's great that we're able to leverage you to share all of these learnings without us all going to Oxford. Um, on the <laughs> uh, as, as intriguing as that, as that sounds. Um, so I was thinking maybe we can get a little tactical here uh, and start to talk about like some of the different you know, maybe barriers to happiness and some of the different tools that um, that folks can use to cultivate more happiness. So let's start with the work environment. I'm really interested in, in this idea, but um, how does the environment around us when we're working or otherwise impact our happiness and what can we do to improve it? So, okay, for one, most of us know the places that bring us joy. For instance, we know that when we go to the beach, we enjoy the beach or whatever it is that is your thing. And so what I would say is in your work environment, set up an environment that makes you feel good. Whether it is the music that you are playing in your office, you could create a happy playlist with some of your favorite songs, whether it was a song you played as the first dance at your wedding, the song that you know always gets you in a good mood that makes you want to get up and dance. 
We need to declutter our spaces. So many of us have so much clutter around. It is hard to focus when you have clutter in your midst. Another thing is make sure that your environments are well lit. Vitamin D is essential, especially for those of us who are living in colder climates. Ensure that you have well lit rooms, that your windows are open during the day, that you are getting enough sunlight. Another thing that you can do is to also have pictures of happy memories around you, pictures that trigger joy. And separate and apart from your physical environment, think about who you are socializing with. We are the sum of the five people we're talking to. Too many of us are allowing negative nances to occupy our space. Look on your phone call log. Who are the five people you're talking to most? How do they make you feel when you speak to them? And I'm not saying not to talk to your sister who nags you or your mother-in-law who nags you or whatever, please. But what I want you to do is that when you are going to interact with anybody who you know, or even a client that you know is going to bring your mood down, what happiness enhancing activity can you do immediately after? You could dance in your office, dance at home, 12 minutes of exercise. That's just three songs is enough to increase your feel good hormones, increase your oxytocin and make you feel better. So it's really about being intentional from you wake up in the morning about creating an environment that makes you feel good. And that is completely within your control. Yeah, it's so interesting that um, I, you know, especially working from home, I can see like my kids clutter everywhere. And I often will like take, you know, 15 minutes when I, you know, need have other things I need to do and just start picking things up. And I used to think that it was me procrastinating, but I've come to realize that it's actually just, it's me like fixing that barrier to mm -hmm. my ability to actually just focus and move forward. Um, so the, the, but the environment makes a lot of sense to me. And this also explains why, um, much to my husband's amusement, I have this, like, I have like these acrylic and rose gold, like beautiful, like staplers that I, and things oh. that I don't even use, but I like to look at them. They make me happy. <laughs> That's it your space. Many of us enjoy going to the spa. We can't go to the spa every day, but you could create that environment. You could play the music that they play at the spa. You could light candles. I love to go to the beach. I play ocean waves in my background, in my house all the time because it calms me it reminds me of the beach so you don't literally have to do the thing to enjoy the thing so get creative with some of the things you're doing and create a happiness jar this is so important earlier i mentioned what makes you happy what are some of the things that are free easy that you could start doing put write them down put it in the happiness jar on your desk. And whenever you feel stressed out or your happiness levels plummeting, surprise yourself, go in that jar, pick something out and do that activity. Surprise yourself. It could be jump rope, go for a walk, a five minute breathing exercise, but whatever it is, make it something that is easy and accessible that you can do in the moment. No, I love that idea. Um, so I wanted to ask next about social connection. I know um, the research shows that social connection is, um, you know, far more than money, for example, is a, a bigger determiner of, of, of how happy we are, predictor of happiness. Um, how does the, uh, how does this work, and especially in this hybrid environment? Like, how can we 
build those meaningful social connections that really improve our, our own happiness. So, you know, the more positive your relations are, relationships are, the better you'll be able to face life challenges. It's inevitable, meaning we're all going to go through tough moments. Um, think about when you have a hard day and you call a girlfriend and you rant to her and how you feel after just being able to just let it out. So the support that you get from your social connection can add to your feelings of meaning and purpose. And these in turn add to your resilience. And so the social connection part of it is that you have to be intentional about forming these relationships, especially now that we're spending so much time isolated at home. Law lawyers are one of the groups who are ranked the loneliest on the lo loneliness scale because we spend so much time alone. But now more than ever, we are connected. So find your tribe online. Find your tribe online. Do you like plants? There's a group for that. There's a meetup group for everything. Join a local book club. And I will say this to attorneys. We have a tendency of only socializing with our peers or other attorneys. Expand your network. Expand your network. Learn from people who are different from you. Variety is the spice of life. So local book clubs, sign up for an exercise class and exercise your social fitness muscles. And what I mean by that is pencil in time to intentionally meet with people who you know you enjoy their company. Not just, oh, I have friends we've been saying for three years. Oh yeah, we should meet up, but we haven't met. But this year I'm being very intentional about meeting my friends by setting dates in the moment because I know it makes me feel good after having that interaction. Can you talk a little bit about social media and its impact on happiness? Oh, listen, social media has its benefits. There is no doubt. Everybody who is listening from this day forward, I will say to you, when you wake up in the morning, we're going to start creating a deliberate morning routine. Most of us wake up and what do we do? We pick up our phone. We start scrolling through Instagram or Facebook, or we check our email. You are going to give yourself self, the gift of five minutes of stillness in the morning. The problem with checking social media in the morning is that the social comparison sets in. Before you even have the opportunity to be one with your thoughts, visualize your day, plan your day, be grateful that you woke up. You are seeing somebody else's highlight reel. You are with yourself 24 hours a day. That highlight reel is a curated image. And now you are comparing yourself to their curated image. Is that fair? You wake up, you felt good when you woke up, but then all of a sudden you go on Instagram, somebody's on a cruise whale watching in Alaska. Why not me? My life sucks. You got on that negative thought pattern. Those 60,000 thoughts, negative thoughts start. So nip the social media scrolling in the bud. You have to start your day, begin your day how you want to win and live your day. So social media, yes, it is good for connecting. And I want you to also assess how do you feel after scrolling? Does it make you feel good? Because what the research has shown is that social media now, especially with the younger generation, it has increased anxiety and depression monumentally. 
Because whereas adults, we have some semblance of being able to separate reality mm -hmm. from the yeah. facade, right? A lot of children don't. So be very mindful about what you're consuming. And more importantly, be very mindful what your children are consuming. Yeah, for me, social media just makes me shop. See? Is that a good habit? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just being honest. You said yes. vulnerability is the key. So here we yes. go. Yes. yes, um, yes. <laughs> sometimes I'll like wake up in the morning and get a shipment, you know, package. And I don't even really remember purchasing it because I must have been mindlessly scrolling through Instagram and decided I needed, I needed a second pair of hot pink stilettos. Who knew? <laughs> Considering that I am at home with two kids all the time and like, you know, the hot pink stilettos don't really come out to play. Um, but that's an aside. Um, so earlier you, you gave me, you said a quote to me that just really resonated, which is com comparison is the thief of joy. Um, and I just, I just love that quote. So comparison I want is the thief of joy because you'll be so grateful with your portion until you start comparing it to somebody else's and listen, everybody's running their own race. We are all authors of our best-selling story. My chapter three doesn't necessarily have to look like Stacey's chapter 30 for my story to be good. Yeah. Right. So just own your story and yes, seek inspiration from other people, but don't spend time wishing you were anybody else because all that energy that you are looking outward or external, you can use it for yourself to make yourself and your life better. So I want to talk about something that is, um, you know, probably more for the, the more senior um, attorneys and business professionals, meaning like folks that manage other people. Yeah. And I want to talk about feedback. And um, I know uh, you have said um, that the ideal feedback, um, like praise to criticism ratio is five to one. And I think that's really interesting. And I was hoping you could talk a little bit more about that and like how we can action that with our team. Like why, why does this matter? So, okay. So the ideal praise to criticism ratio is five to one for every negative comment. You would have to say five positive comments to balance that out. And so why this is important is that typically when we're giving feedback in a work setting, we are Sometimes under stress, we just want to get our points across, fix this thing, do this thing. But when you're thinking about other people's well-being and even just for yourself, leading with the positive comment first, then the criticism works and it helps. It helps the receiver digest the message even better. So the thing is, if somebody said to you, hey, Stacey, last week you did phenomenal at that hearing, your motion was excellent, you did amazing work. This week, the letter that you wrote, I think you could include more facts. How did that make you feel? It made you feel capable and comp competent, and it reassured you that you are able, you're smart, and that you are able to do what you were hired to do. But in the same breath, yes, you have room to learn and room to grow. So I would implore managers, partners, as you are talking to your colleagues, employees, be very mindful about how you're giving criticism. And so not only be mindful, but also give actionable feedback, not vague feedback. And if you're in the room and somebody is giving vague feedback, step up and say, oh, but could you explain more in detail what could be better point by point, flesh it out. 
because so many of us are just operating in the gray area. And so clarity is power. And we will be able to get further ahead if we just stop instead of going in that cycle, sending emails back and forth, when you could just show up, bring good energy, give the positive comment first, and then lead with the, then say the negative comment. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, even outside of work, I think I'm probably better at including the feedback, you know, the positive feedback with the, with the negative at work. But I was thinking about with the uh, two teenage boys in my house, I think I'm probably more at the like five criticism to one praise. <laughs> like, do and this, they internalize this. Nice shirt. And then, you know, <laughs> so, internalize it. yeah, it's really, remember, we are thinking yeah. negatively most of the time. Most of us are so starved for affirmation and validation. And listen, I am not saying that you need to depend on people to affirm you, but it feels good. You should affirm yourself. Affirmations work. Every morning you should wake up and affirm yourself so that you don't need other people to necessarily fill up your time. But Mm -hmm. for all of us, it would be so much better if we led with kindness because kindness begets kindness. And most people aren't hearing kind things. You don't know what people left at home when they show up at work. So they left home, they feel unhappy. They come to work, you are bombarding them with criticism. So treat people how you'd want to be treated. Um, And related to that, um, you, you, you and I were speaking earlier and you were talking about kind of self-compassion and like how, you know, how do you balance wanting to be vulnerable and honest with yourself about how you're doing in a moment, right? Like how you're feeling about a given moment or a given event or experience without really just ruminating on it. And you had given me some really interesting and thought-provoking, um, ideas around kind of how to how to give yourself grace and compassion in that moment and how to handle it. Can you just share that more broadly with the group? So. And sadness, do you want to remind you what you said? Like, no, you no, no, I remember. it was eye-opening to me. And I just. Sadness, anxiety, all those emotions are valid. Mm -hmm. One thing I'm very clear on as a happiness coach is that I don't want people to think that you just wake up every day in a big ball of happiness and that's the end of the story, right? It's something that you have to actively work on, but you have to be aware of how you're feeling in order to move forward. And so the thing with self-compassion is that many times we're so much harder on ourselves than we would be on a best friend, a lover, a significant other, a, a child. And so what I would suggest is in the moments that you feel that you're going to be hard on yourself, I want you to freestyle journal, take out a paper and for 10 minutes, just freestyle, write everything on that paper about how you're feeling. I messed up at work. I'm not capable. I'm not good enough. Why did they hire me? They're going to fire me. I'm stupid. I'm dumb. Leave that paper there for 30 minutes. And then I want you to go back and read it with fresh eyes. And when you read it, I want you to think, would you give that advice or would you speak so harshly to somebody that you love? And I want you to start treating yourself with the kindness that you would to a loved one if they were in a tough situation. We tend to be so hard on ourselves at times, but I know you would never say some of the things that you said to yourself, to your mom or your daughter. If a child messes up, honey, do it again. It's okay to make mistakes. Why is it that 
as adults, we don't allow ourselves to make mistakes. And, and that's a problem because then we don't try new things. So self-compassion is just being kind with yourself, being patiently with yourself and extending the grace to yourself that you would extend to others. I just love that. And I, I, it's so true that you're in so much harder on yourself, right? You would never, I mean, I would never demand of other people, you know, or treat anybody else the way that I can treat myself when I feel like I've, I've screwed up in some way. Um, so I just think that like concept of just taking a step back and really, um, viewing it with fresh eyes from the perspective of, you know, if this were somebody I loved saying this, like, what would my reaction be? And why is my reaction so different when it's me? But you know what it is also, Stacey, is that attorneys, we tend to be overachievers. We are high achievers. We are brilliant people. We have come this far. We've gone to law school. We've passed the bar. And for so much of our lives, we had like a clear path. Pass, take the LSAT graduate from law school, maybe make it to law review, then go to the law firm, become a partner, right? And so sometimes life is not linear. It can get messy and there's magic in the mess. So we have to learn to embrace that. We are not robots and we're not perfect. So there's magic in the mess. And so we have to shake off this image of perfection and, and, and of having it all together. It keeps so many of us stuck. I know it was keeping me stuck. Like, oh, I always have it together. How can I now fall apart? And that was so burdensome. So yes, extend that grace to yourself, but also realize that you are not a robot. You're not perfect. And trying to figure this thing out. You know, along those lines, this idea of making sure that you have access to um, like knowledge building resources. Because a lot of times, if we feel like we're not, um, you know, prepared for a situation or we need to learn more, that can really increase anxiety and nervousness. And, you know, obviously, um, hopefully everybody knows that the firm has really great um, training resources and, and things along those lines, but it kind of makes me laugh a little bit along the lines of what you were just saying. Like, I remember being a junior lawyer and thinking to myself, you know, when I would face a new question or a new issue, like someday in my career, I'm going to know, you know, like I'm going to know the answers to all these things. Like everything's going to be like second nature to me like I'm gonna totally know what I'm doing all the time and then you know here however many 18 years later you know it's like no you know it's not that way that what makes this job interesting and cool is that we're dealing with novel issues all the time and we have to exercise our judgment and we're constantly learning and kind of getting comfortable with discomfort of that mm -hmm. has been really important to me like in addition to knowing that we have all of these great resources and training opportunities that, you know, we can all take advantage of just getting comfortable with the, like, you know, and embracing really the fact that, that this job is, is cool and interesting because it's always new and we don't always have to have the. Constantly striving for the next thing and, um, it can be exhausting. So we have to give ourselves some grace. Exactly. And we have to just learn to savor the moments. But to piggyback of what you're saying about just even learning, you know, so many of us are not necessarily unhappy in our lives. We are bored. The monotony is killing us. So yes, 
in our day-to-day -day jobs, we are learning new novel concepts and ideas, but are you learning outside of work? Are you shaking up your life? What new things have you tried? What new books have you read? And so I like to tell my clients, listen, it's not that you are unhappy, you're bored, you're living the same life, 18 years, 20 years, going to the same grocery store, driving the same way to work every day. Of course you are bored. Of course you feel like life is blah. So one concept that I've come up with is creating a fantastic 50 bucket list. And so the beauty of that, and everybody, that's your homework. You're going to find an accountability partner over these next 21 days. I don't expect you to do everything, the 50 things all at once. But I would suggest that you write 50 things that you would want to try or things that you would want to do, whether it is to go to the skating ring or go to the Thai restaurant down the street. Do things that are new and exciting to you. Include your family, include your friends. And with your accountability partner, I want you to check in with them at least once a week to see if they have done their exercise. And happiness shared is happiness multiplied. So the two of you in tandem sharing it, you may get creative ideas from her. She may get creative ideas from you. It's a good way to just add some spice and some excitement to your life outside the confines of work. I love that idea. Um, I'm working on my list. Yay. Um, <laughs> I need to work on my list for this year. I know. So do you do one each year? Yes. Yes. So okay. it's, it, I, I hate to even admit this on my bucket list is to go to the Grand Canyon and it makes no sense. I've traveled all over the world and still have not gone to the Grand Canyon. So that's number one on my fantastic 50 list. It's a huge thing, but beach yoga is now on my list. I look forward to it every Wednesday. And I have fun, you know, curating my list. It gives me something to look forward to. Yeah, I like the idea of doing it jointly with my partner and like coming up with the list of things that we wanna, we wanna do. Together. Great idea. Um, so I wanna talk about leave about like, you know, vacation and then what I consider to be the exact opposite of vacation, parental leave. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, historically the legal industry has been really um, terrible at leaves, at respecting leaves and things like that. Why is it so important um, that people are, are able to take, you know, a real, real time away? Well, for one, attorneys, we teach people how to treat us. We don't set healthy boundaries. We make it seem like our clients or whoever has accessibility to us at all times. So I would start by saying that you have to set healthy boundaries. You have to make it clear when you're available and when you're not. Of course, there are high emergent situations where you just have to show up. But for the most part, we wear this superwoman and superman cape like a badge of honor. I'm available. I can do everything. But really, can you? If it comes at your comes at your detriment, 32% of lawyers report they feel pressure not to take vacation time. And so it would help if holidays were mandatory. Across the board, each employee must take at least three days or one week. Whatever it is the firm comes up with, come up with a plan that works for your firm because it makes all the difference. Time off gives us time to decompress, to become creative again, to think outside the box 
our brains become more adaptable. So it's imperative that you are taking your time off. And it is also imperative that you are letting the people around you know when you are available or unavailable. I like to say, I use my time because if I were to fall dead tomorrow, God forbid, they would fill my position in two weeks. They would send my mom some orchids. And so Rochelle was wonderful. And we enjoyed having her here. But guess what? The show goes on with or without me. So sometimes we have so much self-importance and ego believing that the world is going to collapse if we are not showing up. But indeed, let me tell you something. If tomorrow you are unable to show up, MoFo will continue all its work. <laughs> but we will be sad <laughs> we will be sad and we will talk about you very nicely but the show goes on um I just want to pop in a little reminder here if anyone in the audience has questions do feel free to to um to ask them although I will I I have plenty um but I was just gonna say you know, I had a really um, eye-opening experience when I was a senior associate and I had a really serious medical situation. I was in the hospital for, for a while and like, I could not, like, it wasn't, it wasn't a choice. Like I just couldn't be available for my teams. And guess what? Like everything went on, everything was fine. And it was so eye-opening to me because I realized that like, it wasn't the expectations of other people on me. It was me. It was me having this, like, um, I don't know, I don't, inflated sense of self-importance in a way, like, oh, well, I'm the only one that can do this, or I'm the only one that knows this. And there will be time, certainly, where, like, you happen to have the institutional knowledge or, you know, but for the most part, like, somebody really can do what we do. And it was just really eye-opening to me to see, to see that, you know, things went on and things were okay. And my team was able to step in for me. And it, it made me a lot more um, kind of thoughtful and judicious about when I felt like I, you know, had to be available. And another thing, um, another thing that I, um, I, that I recall that I shared earlier, I was a partner that um, was a mentor to me who is now retired, um, had pointed out to me when I think I was a junior partner, but um, but she said to me, you know, I, I had sent an email around, which now isn't really embarrassing in hindsight, but I had said to my team, like, you guys, I'm having this medical procedure Monday morning. I'll be monitoring email Monday afternoon. I don't know what kind of state I'll be in. So, and she called me out. She was like, are you serious? The people on our team are looking at that and they're saying, wait, the expectation is that I have a medical procedure and then I check email that afternoon. She's like, you know, like that's, you have to model behavior. You have to, you have to like be aware of the, you know, the decisions that you make and the boundaries you draw and the impact that it has on your team because they look up to you and they're thinking like, this is what it takes to be successful. I think it's really, exactly. uh, it's really interesting. You're setting the temperature. You're setting the temperature. The partners in the law firm are setting the temperature for how the associates show up. If you are sitting at your desk till 10 o'clock at night, a young associate is also feeling, well, if Stacy's here till 10 o'clock at night and she has two children and she's married, then I obviously need to stay here, right? So I am really happy that that 
partner said something to you about that because we have to be very conscious of the actions that we're exhibiting because mm -hmm. people really are following our lead and they're looking to us as older attorneys now to set the temperature and the tone for the work environment. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, we have a couple questions that I kind of want to deal with together okay. um, related to, um, you know, one is like, how candid would you have to be to let your, to, to convince your firm to let you take an unpaid leave of absence. And the other is just around if an associate's depressed and are concerned about what the potential re response would be from a partner. And I just want to say, like the firm has incredible resources. You don't need to go to a given partner if you're worried about what their response is going to be. So after this um, call, we can, we can circulate the different um, resources that you have available and the different people that you can reach out to if you're struggling or need help and you're not comfortable having a conversation with you know, the particular partner that you're working with or, or what have you. There are definitely benefits um, that are available. So I just wanna put in a plug for really how, how good our benefits are. Um, I'll say uh, at the risk of oversharing that I've used the EAP program, the, uh, um, and um, and it's really, really good. It's really good that there's there's counseling services. There's all sorts of different things that that are available, and um, and we have all sorts of uh, you know systems in place to support you. So um, so you know we'll we'll circulate those resources. But I just wanted to to throw that out there. Um, you just gave me chills. And that's exactly why these conversations are important. I applaud you for saying that because when we stand in our truth, we liberate others to do the same. You don't know how many people now on this chat are now thinking if Stacy went to seek help, then of course I can too. So you have given people the permission to not only acknowledge that they're not feeling good, that they are depressed, but now to also seek the resources, resources without shame. So this is exactly why this conversation is necessary, because there's somebody in Beijing right now or Singapore right now who probably was suffering in silence and you have now liberated them. Well, I applaud you. Thank so you. I mean, it's just so for me, like, you know, I just, I feel like there were many years where I felt like I needed to put a, a facade of really being perfect in order to, in order to, to do this job well. And I just, I actually have come to believe that the opposite is true, that like, I'm just a better leader of my teams. And, you know, if, if I'm honest, maybe over honest, sometimes depending on who you ask. Um, but I just think it's really important to, to, um, for all of us to like model authentic behavior and, and, and let people know that like we all, well, maybe not all of us, but a lot of us struggle with well, we're human. We all are going to have our stresses. Listen, none of us are going to go through life without any form of stress or sadness. We're going to experience whether it's divorce or a breakup, job loss, yeah. Death of loved ones. It is just a part of life. And it is just coming up with the skills and the tools in order to cope when we are in those tough seasons, because the tough seasons are going to come. But as we're doing, we are giving you the tools to like develop your own happiness toolkit so that when those seasons come, you know where to seek the help and you know what you need to do to get yourself back to your happy place. So 
I want to turn a little bit um, to something uh, in your book that I think is really interesting and that you've said resonates with a lot of your readers, which is this concept of like your eight-year-old self mm-hmm. and asking yourself whether your eight-year-old self would be proud of you. Like, what is it about eight and your eight-year-old self? And like, why does this concept resonate so much? So at eight years old, you're no longer a toddler. You are now a child, a boy, girl, becoming whoever you decide and want to be in this world, right? It is a time of your life where you are unencumbered from the social expectations, from what people think you should be doing. If you ask an eight-year-old, hey, what do you want to be when you grow up? They will tell you, I want to be a lawyer, a doctor, a policeman, Miss Universe, a plethora of things. They are uninhibited with their dreams. They vibrate on the wavelength of possibility. And there's something about growing older, we become more risk averse. We start paying attention to people's judgments and what the world says we should be and who we should show up as. So I really encourage people to think back to that eight-year-old you. What did you love doing? When you played, how did that make you feel? Did you like to paint? Did you like to go skating, swimming, start doing some of those things in your life again. It was a time of your life where you were innocent in the way that you viewed the world. And not only were were you innocent in the way that you viewed the world, you were curious. You were willing to learn and stretch your imagination and think outside the box and take risks. So that's that eight-year-old me. I remember I was bold and I was brave. And so in that season where I was just not my best self and my happiness levels had plummeted, I would ask myself, what would eight-year-old Rochelle want to do now? That girl who was so brave and so outspoken, what would she want? And is she proud? And I wasn't proud of myself at some points because I'm like, no, I'm playing small. I'm dimming my light. I'm not learning. I'm not being curious. I care what people think about what I'm doing. Why? So think about that eight-year-old you and tap into that person. You'll be surprised. The thoughts that come up, the imaging that comes up, visualize, sit with yourself, be still, maybe play some meditation music and really tap into that time of your life. It's, it's very, very powerful. Yeah, no, I love that concept. Um, I, my eight-year-old self was, uh, was uh, very interested in in makeup and sewing. So I, I think I really went astray somewhere. When here. was the last time you sewed? <laughs> That's a fair question. I don't know. That's I don't know how to sew. You I should add that to your bucket list. Yeah, my daughter would be delighted if I started sewing. Again. Yeah, and that would be something cute that you could do together. Yeah, maybe. It's, it's yeah. A, um, you, look how brightly you smile when you mention it. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, before we close, um, and I know we're getting really close to the end of our time, um, I wanted to ask you, you and I are actually, I think, the, the more or less the same age. And, you know, having gone through sort of the journey that you went and transitioning from being an unhappy lawyer to a, to a, a, a happiness coach, um, what advice would you give to that 24-year-old self? that's just launching the career. Like what, what would you say to her now, knowing what you know now, like what are, what's the advice? What are the things that, that, that she should do that she should focus on? And hopefully that will give some, uh, 
some useful advice to some of, well, all of us probably, but, you know, in particular, some of the, our, our audience that are just starting out on their careers. So for one, I would say I would do, I'd be more intentional about checking in with myself about how I was feeling, not just existing, but really being intentional about how am I feeling day to day, moment by moment, and in the different seasons of my life. Also, I would have sooner, I would have started doing more activities outside of law sooner. I was so focused on just one trajectory, not realizing, of course, I am a dynamic, multifaceted person. It didn't matter. So many people said, oh, but you're a lawyer. How are you going to teach happiness? That's an oxymoron. But it has brought me so much joy. So I wouldn't have succumbed to the world's view of what an attorney should be. I would have tuned into my own knowing and my own being and followed what was true to my heart sooner. I would have been more curious. I would have been doing more activities outside of law. I would have definitely maintained relationships with people who were not necessarily so infused in my legal work. So that, you know, like I have friends from all walks of life, but in Miami, most of my friends are attorneys. And so I would have tapped into my Jamaica network sooner because I realized that that was something that really brought me joy, being raised in Jamaica, having those high school memories. So that would be something I would also. And I probably would have just been more intentional about seeking therapy and just having a neutral third party to bounce my ideas off of. There was a stigma around, oh, but I could just figure it out myself or I could pray or I could go to church and just have it all together. No, therapy is there for a reason to help you unpack your blind spots. So I would have also done that sooner. Yeah, no, I love all of that advice. Um, one of my mentors, Paul Friedman, um, said to me once, uh, probably when I was a senior associate, you know, um, and he saw just that I was kind of working super hard and and not, you know, really focusing on myself a lot. And he just sat me down one day and said, Stacy, this job is a marathon. Like it's not a sprint. You have to find a way to do this in a way that's that's that 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 you enjoy, that's healthy for you, and that's sustainable. And, you know, and I just really took that to heart. And I also think there's something about, you know, somebody senior that you're working with that kind of giving you that permission to, you know, to like, Hey, you know, you need to like focus on yourself too, and focus on your career and, and like how to make this career have longevity for you. Because I think we all know that if we're not, if we're not able to find happiness and, some, some kind of, you know, focus on our own self wellness, um, probably no job is sustainable for us. So, um, well, Rochelle, thank you so much. This has been really, really fascinating. And I hope really helpful for people. I, I think you all know that we're launching a 21 day happiness challenge. If you'd like to participate and you haven't yet signed up, the link is in the calendar invite for this, um, for this call. And um, if you'd like, you can sign up for the small group discussions. It's completely optional, but we'll be doing some of the sort of, you know, maybe accountability type um, activities that Rochelle was mentioning and, and uh, be able to leverage each other to, to um, get more out of the experience, but totally optional. And thank you all of you for, for tuning in. Um, we really uh, appreciate your participation. Mm -hmm.